There is going to be a red wave in the midterm elections in November. But what sort of Republicans are those of us on the right going to end up with? Are they going to be true conservatives that want to actually change the political course of our nation? Or are they going to be the type that just want to be in control of the runaway train? From my observation post 2,300 miles away, I'd say that Washington State is headed for the latter, if they don't actually end up seeing a negative tide with them solidifying even more power. How could that happen? Well, let's talk about it as we have another hazardous conversation. Trigger warning disclaimer. Hazardous Conversations pushes rhetorical boundaries for acceptable political discourse. Listening to this program could have the uncomfortable side effect of provoking deep intellectual inquiry into foundational principles of liberty. Listener discretion is advised. Conservatives need to be wary out there. I'm noticing a disturbing number of candidates emerging across the country that have, shall we say, shady political histories? Some of these, like Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, have already gotten a fair amount of attention on this front, while others, like the Senate race in Ohio between J.D. Vance and Josh Mandel, may be running a little more under the radar depending on what conservative radio you listen to. In Washington state, there's a candidate running as a Republican for Secretary of State who, until very recently, has been a big Bernie Sanders supporter. And just this past year, a Republican, Ann Davidson, was won election to the Seattle City Attorney's Office. Thing is, she had been a lifelong Democrat up until 2020 when she attempted to sneak onto the ballot for the lieutenant governor under the GOP. Now, I am not denying anybody the ability to have a genuine change of heart or to see the political light, as it were. After all, people can easily go back to my own Facebook postings leading up to the 2016 election and read all about my distrust and disdain for candidate Trump. I simply did not trust the man or take him seriously. I was proven, thankfully, to be totally, well, mostly, wrong about how he governed, and I admit that. The one area that I still think I called it right about him is that in the final analysis... He wants to be loved, and he'll make decisions based on that, which is why I think he got the COVID so horribly wrong. But I would gladly take that one fault over Crazy Uncle Joe and company any day. But how much can we really expect people to change when it comes to politics? And how can we tell when that change is genuine or merely a calculated power play? There is real danger in the GOP right now, as just about anyone and everyone that can be intellectually honest knows of the likelihood of a red wave come November. The danger comes from the fact that there are those that will want to capitalize on that momentum shift, not for altruistic desire to bring about real positive political change, but merely to grift on the shifting political tide. And that is what has me so concerned in the trend that I am seeing. Now, it is said that a leopard cannot change its spots. Does following this ancient and biblical wisdom disallow acceptance of a person's true change of heart? 
Are we so cynical that we never accept that Saul can turn into Paul? In my time being active with the Washington State GOP, I certainly saw both sides of this dilemma, and I am totally willing to call out the plank in my own eye on this. However, I cannot find a spiritual injunction anywhere which demands that as we extend grace to the penitent, we do so while completely abandoning our discernment and prudence. For example, have any of you had a friend or family member who struggles with alcohol or some other addiction? Have you ever experienced their struggle with kicking that addiction? Most do not get sober the first time they try, and more often than not, it takes several attempts. As we watch them struggle, we naturally develop a deepening skepticism each time they come to us declaring their newfound fervor and devotion to getting sober this time. The more this happens, the more cynical we become that they will ever succeed. However, if we have ever loved them, we also retain a genuine desire and hope that they will in fact succeed. And we stand ready to pour out graces upon them if and when they stay the course. See, our skepticism isn't without merit, and it may even be necessary for protecting ourselves and them. After all, how do you react if such a friend, shortly after declaring their latest fealty to being clean, comes to you to excitedly announce their new bartending job at a tavern? Does your brotherly or sisterly love for them and desire to show penitent grace prevent you from sharing your rational skepticism and concern for them in this choice? Of course not. Rational skepticism and penitent grace are not mutually exclusive propositions, and they can, in fact, complement each other to the benefit of all. Of course, holding on to that skepticism for too long, and in the face of genuine fruit from a transformed life, that is a bad thing, and is, in fact, a sin. So, while I wouldn't necessarily equate a recovering addict with a person undergoing a political transformation, I see how we approach such a person as being perfectly comparable. Just as it wouldn't be prudent to put someone in the earliest stages of recovery in charge of the sacramental wine, so too might it be unwise to trust with a position of political leadership a person who has, until just very recently, been your political opponent. That isn't to say that they could never earn that trust over time, only that experience has shown that that trust is best earned slowly. Now, to be fair, I completely understand the enthusiasm of the recent convert. And if the change is sincere and long-lasting, this fervor to be useful takes on even more life. But in the political arena, that energy can be directed in any number of useful ways that don't have to be on the ballot. And therein lies the point in my concern about all these candidates coming out of the woodwork in this election cycle. Going back to the idea that a leopard cannot change its spots, most people do not stray far from the core of who they are. That whatever morals and ethics and other things which are important to a person tend to remain largely the same throughout their life. 
even when a person has a monumental change, such as getting clean and sober or the like, it often sees them experiencing a renewal of principles and spirit rather than an adoption of new ones. My point here is that with all of these Johnny-come-latelys to the conservative side, I fear that many, if not most, even if they have had a genuine shift in their present political thinking, if they were to be elected to these offices, they would, in the long run, return to their progressive roots. Now, I don't know any of them personally, so I'm forced to take them at their word. But which words? The words they spoke for most of their adult lives and up to less than two years ago? Or the words they speak today? Listen, I get it. We desperately want to turn the tide against the swamp dwellers who are destroying our nation. We perceive a Democrat party that is imploding, and we salivate over the gains we could make. But we are also burned out from years of election fraud to varying degrees. So we carry with us this gnawing seedling of doubt over whether we can win. And that doubt causes us to run for the cover of the appeal to the middle argument. We listen to the party bosses who tell us that we must choose someone who is, quote, electable, whatever that means. My experience is that it means someone who is either afraid of being a conservative in public, or, more likely, they really aren't a conservative, just someone that says a few key things that they think conservatives want to hear while remaining wholly progressive at their core. I know this to be true because I've been present at the meetings where these discussions take place. I have served on the executive boards of both my county and state Republican parties in Washington State. I have been privy to the email chains and phone conversations where party bosses plot the sabotage of outspoken conservatives while lecturing the base to not be so radical. And I've been on the receiving end of state party officials telling conservative activists in my county that we cannot attack the progressive candidate over her criminal past because it would make us sound mean. This is why I get concerned when I see and hear people that I have otherwise considered to be solid conservatives start lauding and fawning over candidates that have dubious political histories as conservatives. Sean Hannity, I'm looking at you, pal. And I also get frustrated when I see, hear, or read about our side attacking our own. I'm not talking about holding candidates or electeds accountable for their words and or actions. I'm talking about those instances where loyal party members get angry because a newbie to the political scene has been honest in calling out the party and the establishment hacks it keeps propping up. Now before I wrap up this topic, for now, because it will come back, I do want to give a little bit of fair time to some of the points that many of these spaghetti-spined conservatives make when defending their positions on candidates. The first of these actually references a phrase used by Glenn Morgan, probably the most outstanding conservative activist on the West Coast. But he always says that the future belongs to those who show up. Now that may seem to be a somewhat obvious idea, but it is one that we somehow seem to struggle with. Not just in terms of getting voter turnout, but in all aspects of our activism, and probably most true in developing solid conservative candidates. 
Folks, if we can't find and develop the principled people to carry our banner, then how the heck can we get hopping mad when the establishment chooses one for us? I'm not talking about when they sabotage true conservatives. I'm talking about the far too often fact that we fail to produce said conservatives for them to even try to sabotage. The second point is really an extension of the first, candidate development. Nearly every single person that I've ever talked to who has run for political office, whether they win or lose on their first outing, all have told me that they learned a lot during their first run. Seeking political office at almost any level requires a steep learning curve, from campaign financing laws and regulations to public speaking to debating skills and strategies. Most people stepping into the political arena for the first time need some help to develop themselves. That, among other reasons, is why it is a good idea to start small when it comes to what office a person seeks for their first time out. I know, many people get involved and become candidates because they see something wrong in a certain area, so they want to run for office in that area. Whether that's school board, or city council, or state rep, or congress, we tend to be a bit impulsive when it comes to what motivates us to get involved. But the reality is, with few exceptions, most people are not readily suited to step out of their private lives and into the public sphere and do well right away. So, we conservatives, if we want to have better choices in our candidates going forward, and if we want to lessen the ability of the establishment to sabotage real conservatives, we need to be developing our bullpen. We need to get conservatives into public office at every level, the smallest levels, to gain the experience of A, running a political campaign, and B, actually serving if elected. And this brings me back to my original concern and point. All of these recent converts to the right are jumping into races for office which belie their experience, and for which little to no trust amongst would-be voters has been earned. Now, I'm not claiming that all these candidates have nefarious intent in doing this, but I do think it would be naive in the extreme to think most are doing so out of pure desires to serve. And, as we have already discussed, when you look at many of these candidates' pasts, it should cause us all to be extremely wary and discerning. So I'm not here to say that you can't trust any of these newcomers or anything other than be extra cautious. There is going to be a red wave come November, though I expect that it won't be uniform based on the level of corruption in each state's elections. But where the elections are still somewhat free and fair... How much worse would it be if we are lax in the candidates we put forth to ride this wave, only to find that we've merely installed a wolf in sheep's clothing? And that will do it for this episode. I'd like to thank Julie Barrett of Conservative Ladies of Washington for helping to inspire me to talk on this subject. Julie has her own wonderful podcast that she produces daily called Woman's Planning. And I encourage you all to go give her a listen when you get the chance. 
If you've enjoyed this episode and the podcast in general, I'd very much appreciate if you would rate it, follow it, maybe leave a comment or a review. But most importantly, I'd appreciate if you could share it with someone else that you think might enjoy it as well. So until next week, God be with you all in all that you do. And remember, keep the faith and keep up the fight.